Coming to you from Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, the city of brotherly love and sisterly affection. I'm Lisa Sharon Harper, president of Freedom Road, a consulting group dedicated to shrinking the narrative gap. Welcome to the Freedom Road podcast. Each episode, we speak with national faith leaders, advocates, and activists to have the kinds of conversations we normally have on the front lines. It's just that this time, we've got microphones in our faces, and you are listening in. So this episode, we are joined by Andre Henry, author of All the White Friends I Couldn't Keep, co-host of the Hope in Hard Pills podcast, local LA-based advocate and activist, and singer-songwriter-producer. His work has been featured in The Nation, The New Yorker, New York's Lincoln Center, the Kennedy Center for the Performing Arts in Washington, D.C., and hold on to your seats, my friends. The Super Bowl, what? Yes, Super Bowl 16. Yes, his work was featured there. And it was it was a proud moment for me, um, you know, Auntie Lisa, <laughs> for for Andre, watching watching my little cousin you know, my, my fake cousin go into the world and, and make a real, real splash. It was beautiful and powerful. So I invited Andre, my homeboy, to speak with us today because he understands joy and he understands art. He understands the power of the arts to bring hope and vision and health. And we need some of that, do we not? So in these summer months, amid historic indictments and historic environmental hazards and political targeting of everybody, who isn't a white man, um, we are going to go into our into our souls and actually have some fun, okay? That's what we're doing. We're doing the fun today. So we'd love to hear your thoughts. Please tweet or Insta me at Lisa S. Harper or to Freedom Road at Freedom Road Us. Um, and uh, we're also on Substack and Patreon at Freedom Road. So keep sharing the podcast with your friends and networks and letting us know what you think. All right, so Andre, let's dive in. First question, we always start with our stories. You know, we, we, we want people to understand who we are we begin before we start dropping knowledge, right? So I wanted, I wanted to know first, can you share with us your story of realizing that you're an artist? Yeah, um, well, thanks for having me, um, first off. And I've always known that I was an artist. So, you know, when I, um, I come from a musical family, you know, my, my father is a reggae musician. He um, was making reggae music in Jamaica at the same time as Bob Marley. They actually famously got kicked out of the studio so the Wailers and Bob Marley could get in there. Like, get out of here, you know. We, oh, my God. What? So, <laughs> you know. Wow. So as a young boy, like I remember, like my father also um, was very much involved with um keeping the cultural folk songs of Jamaica alive. He worked at a university in Jamaica um, that dealt with music and all that kind of stuff. And so, you know, he he made a conga drum for me when I was little. He he would write songs. He had a reggae. He was like the first reggae band in Atlanta where we grew up, you know. Huh. So I grew up around that. My sister was a dancer, a singer. She's an actor now. You know, my, my brother, my older brother, he raps. And so, you wow. know, he's always around me. And yeah. so just even at a young age, I would, um, you know, I would draw, you know, uh, when I was, I remember I would constantly draw these lions sitting on thrones with crowns on their heads, you know, the lion oh. of Judah as a young Oh my girl. goodness. And, Wait, uh, so real quickly. So your faith life was also something that came early for you. 
Is that yeah, right? Yeah, really early on, you know, um, my grandma, you know, took me to church with her when I was young and I just took to it. You know, I was around seven mm-hmm. or eight years old. Wow. And then also because, you know, reggae music is very spiritual, you know, like, and I was surrounded by that, you know. Right. You know, Bob Marley sings a lot, you know, from his Rastafarian, you know, faith, you know, yeah. but, you know, it's like one love, one heart, you know, everybody remembers the let's get together and feel all right. But the next phrase is give thanks and praise to the Lord and I will feel all right. Right. That's what. What? Oh, my God. I never realized that before. What? And praise to the Lord and I will feel all right. You know, wow. So it's just I never the- noticed that. Yeah, you know, a lot of people don't. So that was always kind of circling. So I remember I just loved music, you know, just Mm -hmm. as a kid. And I found out maybe when I was in fourth grade that like Bob Marley got paid to make music. I didn't know that. I didn't realize realize people got that was like a job that someone could have. And when I learned that, I said, well, I want to do that. You know, like I wrote my first song when I was in second grade. But then around like fourth grade, I started writing more songs. And that was just, I oh knew that that's what I wanted to do with my life. And this was untrained. Like you just started writing songs? Yeah. I just or did your dad, writing. like, did your dad teach you no, the, he, the craft? He didn't teach me. You know, my older sister had a little Casio keyboard and oh I used my to God. play with it, you know, every day. I just like played with it. I didn't even understand, but I could hear, you know, I was like born with a good ear. So yeah. like, I could hear like these little harmonies and stuff. And so I think my dad just like walked in one day and he saw me playing the keyboard and he was just so excited, you know, and just so happy, you know, and my father and my mother, they were always, my mother's not living anymore, but, you know, they were always very encouraging for me, you know what I mean? So when my dad saw that I love music, he just made music with me, you know, so he just, you know, if I'm playing the keyboard, he'd play the drum or he'll sing with me or whatever and he's still like that when my sister oh got my married God. a few years ago I uh, before the ceremony I saw a piano and anytime I see a piano I, I want to play I sat down I played and I'm playing um Waiting in Vain by Bob Marley it's one of my favorite songs okay Bob Marley first uh, I mean just a little tangent he's been a huge influence for me in general hmm. mm-hmm. so I know a ton of Bob Marley songs so I sit down play the piano playing uh Waiting in vain. And my dad just comes up to the piano. He starts singing, you know. Um, and that's just always been a thing for us. It's beautiful. That is yeah. so beautiful. Yeah. Oh yeah. my God. Thank you. I so I can totally see it. And yeah. and the honestly, like the the father-son yeah. relationship around song mm-hmm. and music, I'm sure is something that kind of powers your vision of wellness, your vision of wholeness Absolutely. and what the world should be. It's I, one of the things that um, I love about your work is that it's visionary. You're not just, you know, walking around angry. You actually literally call people to see what isn't there and to see that another world is possible. I love your, um, your saying that you've made into t-shirts. It doesn't have to be this way. Yeah. But it strikes me that one of the reasons you know it doesn't have to be this way is because of the love that you experienced mm-hmm. from your father. Yeah, there's so much in my family that I look at and I'm like, I know that I know that miracles are possible because of what has happened in family, you know. Mm. 
And with some of the songs that we'll talk about today, mm-hmm. you know, some of that I re- recently um, published, mm-hmm. I don't know, like, I, I think that what I'll say is that you you know very well that especially coming from the Black diaspora, that we have endured so much inter, intergenerational trauma. Yes. That some of that is just kind of normalized, right? In our experiences growing up, you know, like yeah. how many times do we joke about like, did you get spanked as a child and all this other kind of stuff, you know, like that kind of stuff right. is real. But I have seen real transformation in my family, you know, oh, wow. in the people in my family, the men in my family in particular. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And in some ways, the minute some of the men in my family, my father's a good example. You know, I think that I just got a different picture of what we could be mm-hmm. because, you know, nobody's perfect. My dad's not perfect. He'd be the first to tell you, you know. Yeah. And there are plenty of times when we're talking like, oh, dad, <laughs> oh, Baba, I call him Baba. Oh. <laughs> you know? Right. And um, so sweet. He, yeah. But one thing I can say is that he did embody a different type of masculinity to me growing up you know, like, wow, we're going to get into that. We'll get into that a little bit later. I don't want you to, I don't, you know, I want to save that because that's, I I really want to get into that in the next segment. Can I, can I ask you, you know, the thing that even out of what you're just saying, there's a lot of different ways that you could have gone in life, like a lot of different directions. You are a writer, you Mm -hmm. are a podcaster, you have been a, a, a student of social movements yeah. Um, you were considering, if not already, in a study, you know, a program of study around social movements. Um, why did you choose to go deep into the arts? I mean, it feels to me, tell yeah. me if I'm if I'm wrong, but it's it feels to me like you made a decision maybe a year, maybe two years ago, yeah. um, where you said, I'm going to who I am. I'm going back to the core of who I am. I'm going to live out of the core. And yeah. the core is you, the artist. Yeah, I think you're right, you know, that I made a decision and said, you know, like, Mm. I'm going back to the core of who I am. I love that. I love the way that you put that, because there are two things. One was my experience on the street (laughs) as an activist. First off, I told myself when it was happening that I didn't want to become a community organizer, right? Like I stumbled into doing that after we watched Philando Castile die on Facebook Live, right? Oh, wow. Um, my first response was writing songs and really art. You know, I painted this boulder, 100-pound boulder white. I wrote all over it the things that weigh on the Black psyche. I dragged that around LA with me. Wow. Because I had visions, you know, about me doing- 100-pound boulder? Yeah. <laughs> Holy crap. Um, I don't think that really set in with me. I knew about the boulder- but I think I might have forgotten how heavy that thing was. <laughs> yeah, it was it was literally a hundred pounds. Wow. Um, I wrote the names of the dead on my my suit jacket and walked around in mourning for them, you know, like wow. those were the kinds of things that I did at first. Mm-hmm. But then I found myself volunteering with Black Lives Matter and really pursuing the question of social change. So I kind of stumbled into that, right? Oh. And in doing that. I saw so much toxicity <laughs> in right. there and I'm a very sensitive person, you know, yeah. you're an artist. Uh, yes. Yeah. I'm yeah. very sensitive. And so mm-hmm. I just started feeling like I can't do this. You know, I, I don't know that I can be on the streets like this, you know, because mm-hmm. it's really uh, painful for me. Mm-hmm. The second thing was I had been asking the question, what is the most direct 
contribution I can make to yeah. Black liberation. And let me just say, I love your focus on I. What yeah. is the most direction from direct contribution I can make? Yeah. Because yeah. that allows you to move from the core of who you are, as opposed to trying to be something that you are not created to be. Absolutely. And so because I didn't, there was something I didn't understand. And this is what brought me back into music. Mm -hmm. When I was asking, what's the most direct um, contribution I can make? Mm -hmm. I was thinking very much about the flow of racist power and what needs to happen to stop the flow of racist power. And mm -hmm. so that's how I got really into nonviolent struggle and studying nonviolent struggle. And when I get into something, I go all in. I'm a very yes, passionate. Yes, you do. <laughs> Next thing you know, like a few years later, like I'm in touch with the leading practitioners and scholars on nonviolent struggle with living right. revolutionaries who topple dictators in other countries. I was going to say, you know. <laughs> right, right. But what I didn't understand is what racism, not just racism, any type of oppression actually does to the human body on the cellular mm. level. Wow. I didn't understand that. Wow. And when I, I started reading this book called Black Fatigue, and I can't yeah. remember the name of the author, but she was talking about these studies. There was a 2020 study. We'll link to it. We'll link to it in the show notes. Wonderful. From Auburn University mm -hmm. that showed that the experience of oppression literally releases these stress, stress hormones in the body that cause sickness and disease and even shorten the lifespans of people who are experiencing them. So racism wow. yeah. is definitely, it's structural, it's institutional, it's personal, but it's biological. It has a biological effect on us. Mm -hmm. And what counteracts that stress? You know, music. Whoa! <laughs> Sorry, that was long, but it was really like for real. Like that's a real whoa. Whoa. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. So I realized in like that when we say that, you know, what when we talk about what music does and what it has the power to do, it used to just sound like people are being sentimental and, you know, like not I'm very much like, give me the facts, you know. That's why it was so much about nonviolent struggle. When you talk to me about nonviolent struggle, I was like, listen, the study, the numbers show it's twice as effective as armed struggle. You know, that's, that's why I was right. That's right. So yeah. I couldn't just do music and say, well, people say these things about music and therefore it's good. I needed to know. And the, mm -hmm. once I had data mm -hmm. that, that was like, anytime I make a black person smile, I have won a little victory against racism. Ooh, wow. <laughs> and, and oppression. So but this I'm is like, your way of engaging the struggle. Yeah. Oh, it's, Lord. And, and, wow. and you know what? I just want to add two more things to that, right? What started me down that path before I got the research was this guy named Pops. Or his name isn't Pops, but we call him Pops. Sure. At a music academy that I went to in Inglewood, where the top producers in the world, I mean, this is James Fauntleroy, Rance, um, Lawrence Dobson, who they produce for Timberland, Justin Timberlake, Beyonce, Bruno Mars, all these whoa, people. Whoa. But what? Pops, Pops is his dad. Oh my God. And okay. Pops just Pops and I just hit it off. Like, because oh. he would be on the stage when I walk into the academy playing the piano and I know all these old classic soul music songs you know so yeah. he'll play the piano and I sit down and I play the bass or we'll switch and I'll play the piano and he'll sing 
And I, and I think it was him or somebody told me because I wanted to know, I was like, he's too young to have been alive during Jim Crow, you know, but he was at the tail end of it. You know what I mean? Oh yeah. My mom. I mean, that's, I don't know how old, how young he is or how old he is, but my mom was alive during Jim Crow. My mom, not my grandma, my mom. Yeah. I mean, so that's just, that's the boomer generation. Yeah. So I asked him, I asked, I I would ask him questions all the time. Like Mm -hmm. everyone else is trying to get Rance's attention because he's the one that produces Bruno Mars, but I want Pops' attention because I want to know how did you survive how, when when racism was more overt, all this kind of stuff? So I would ask him questions. So I'd be like, what did y'all do when y'all played Marvin Gaye's What's Going On? He's like, mm. dance. Mm. <laughs> but, but, he said dance. <laughs> he like, dancing, which I, I really wanted to know. So anyway, I bring up Pops because Pops had a realization that when he played music, it made people smile. And he just thought that was amazing. And he wanted to keep doing that. And that really spoke to me. So, I mean, that's really that question of what's the most direct intervention. I realized I didn't need to continue to be a scholar or which I I still do read all the time. It's always going to be a part of my life. I don't need to be a community organizer. I don't have to do all those things. And those things are good. And I'm glad that people are doing them right but what i'm gifted and talented to do and passionate about and built for and built for is yeah. actually enough yes yes hey can you sing for us the song that's about going outside because <laughs> it made me dance i mean no joke when you when you, when i first heard it on instagram i think i heard you singing it on instagram um and it was just like what like I would seriously be listening to this like all the time on Kiss FM and all the stations. <laughs> and then um, when uh, when something just recently came down and it was like really great news, I went to go make my own little you know Instagram reel. And it, that song, your song, was at the top of I the Instagram that. reels. And I used it. People were like, "I love this song." I was like, "Yes." Okay, so can you just play us out of this segment like with that song? Sure, let's do it. Fabulous. Okay, we ready? Yep. All right, let's go. Sometimes I feel suicidal, but I know I don't want to die. It's just another trial. So I'm hanging on to life by the grab bars, hoping that the next stops fall from the triggers that set me up. Every other night, piling up the bottles, or I'm trying to make a pipe burn away the sorrow. Even hit the psilocybin. Dog, I ain't been fighting for tomorrow. Gotta make it to tomorrow. I gotta make it to tomorrow. Now I'm about to go outside, get a little bit of sunlight into my skin. About to take a jock for the endorphins. It's a show that they know this depression won't take me out. About to make a call to my closest friend, get a laugh and hug myself in the mirror for a minute. I'm trying, you know, cause I wanna make it to tomorrow. I gotta make it to tomorrow. 
I'm not afraid to say I'm not okay I'm not ashamed at all Cause one thing about me Yeah, I'm overcoming I'm not afraid to say I'm not okay I've been here before And one thing about me I always overcome And I know I'm gonna fly When I make it to tomorrow When I make it to tomorrow I'm gonna make it to tomorrow Yes! These are our stories. You're listening to the Freedom Road podcast, where we bring you stories from the front lines of the struggle for justice. One day at a time, I'm going to make it to tomorrow. Wow, Andre. Oh, my God. That was so great. (laughs) (laughs) My God, my voice is like, like the top of my face because I'm so excited. (laughs) so much for sharing that with us you know you are a key leader in the local organizing that rose up out of in la has really risen up you said um you know probably from like around uh 2015 Orlando castile right um and then of course through george floyd and all all of the uprising that happened there i mean could you have imagined then that after the great push um, three years later, we would be dealing with legislated banning of books and, <laughs> you know, banning of AP African-American classes and rampant anti-trans legislation across the country. Plus, the Supreme Court is poised to rule right on the second of two voting rights cases. Thank God they actually upheld the first, um, upheld the, the Voting Rights Act in the first case that just went through. And then also, though, they also have two affirmative action cases that they're ruling on. Um, all right now, like literally this month, um, they're going to be passing down these rulings. And I'm just wondering, I mean, that song that you closed us out with, I gotta make it to tomorrow. Yes. Right. So I'm like, yes, that's how I feel in the midst of this time. I just got to make it to tomorrow. Right. So how, how have you been processing all of that? Yeah. I mean, all of the things, all of the things. <laughs> the whole lot of thing, them. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, you know, it's. I was. I, I'm not surprised necessarily because this is what happens, right, in history. And mm-hmm. I know that, like, when I first started learning more about racial history, the way that people talked about it was like one step forward, two steps back. Mm-hmm. But the more that I read, mm-hmm. um, especially like while I was writing my book, I was still studying and I was reading about imperialism, is that what we have are this um, ri- this rhythm of revolution and counter-revolution, right? Oh, wow. Right. So, wow. you know, and yeah. I, so it's still disappointing though. It's still discouraging. Mm-hmm. And I think probably the most discouraging thing for me was like I mentioned, I was, um, 
you know, I was very involved in the uprisings in LA during mm-hmm. 2020. Mm-hmm. And I saw so many people of goodwill, right? Mm-hmm. Show up on the streets, show up to Black Lives Matter meetings, ready to take direction, ready to organize and all that kind mm-hmm. of stuff. Mm-hmm. And I think that what I saw on from my end mm-hmm. is that in our movements, our common sense has to change. Mm. Um, there is a spiritual transformation, a personal transformation that has to happen within us who yes. have been harmed and mm. had and that and that harm has brought, you know, a, a, a type of political awakening. That's good, but it's not enough because what happens is, you know, we, a lot of times we carry that. The world we're trying to fight is the same world that shaped us. That's what I'm trying to say. You know, yeah, I I know exactly what you're talking about. I have a friend who is Native American, um, uh, really organizer, advocate, activist. She's actually a state representative in North Mm -hmm. North Dakota. And she introduced me to the language, which is actually very common in Native American um, world of lateral violence. Yes. Lateral violence is what what they call it, which is the the violence that comes from the person who's standing right next to you. (laughs) Yes, yes. And I saw so much would-be good movement work implode Mm. on the streets. I I told this story in my book, but there was one that I thought was so emblematic where I got invited to this... (laughs) to this action and I got there and I see them marching down the street. So I'm like, okay, that's the action. And I was like, go join. I saw my friend with a megaphone and he's leading some chants. And then I saw this other guy, a taller guy with a hat on, very stylish with his own megaphone, trying mm-hmm. to lead a different chant at the same time. And then oh, to actually start fist fighting with each other in the street. Right. No. And so I'm no. like, yeah. Yeah, LAPD doesn't even need to show up to break up oh, this action because Lord we're taking care of it ourselves, right? Yes. So that's not the only part of why our our movement, because there was a moment in 2020 when it felt like this could change everything. Yes. Right? When you yes. see people all over the world throwing colonizer statues into the sea, when you see corporations feeling pressured to say Black Lives Matter, right. you know, like, that was a moment, but I saw so much movement work implode in LA for I think two reasons. I think one is because those of we, those of us who, I mean, we, I shouldn't say those of us, but we who have been shaped by this racist, capitalist, supremacist system, were doing the racist, capitalist, supremacist violence to one another in the woo, woo. carrying and- the culture into the vision of the future, which of course then corrupts the vision of the future. And all you get is what you've had in the past. Exactly. That's what you bring to the future. Hello. Exactly. And so you have people who are fighting over who gets the platform, who gets the megaphone, who gets the book deal, who gets to be the next Dr. King or Malcolm X or Asada Shakur or whatever. People gossiping and lying about each other, you know, people hiding behind whatever marginalized identity they have to avoid accountability and to, you know, like all that kind of stuff. And that's all under one, one, one umbrella. The second thing that I saw was a lack of interest on the part of people who had influence in these spaces to learn about previous successful campaigns and movements and to apply that. So it's very reactionary, 
all passion, you know, all that kind of thing. And that's just where right. I'm coming from. Right. So I expected that when you come up against the powers that be, they're going to, you know what I mean? It, it makes sense that they're trying to ban books and stuff because what we experience or what we have been experiencing is political awakening. The foundation of their power has been to miseducate the masses. And now the masses are waking up. So they're saying, oh, we've got to, we got to get this information out of there. Isn't that want, something? Yes. Yeah. They want to It's ban. so strategic. It is not, this is not like an irrational thing that just is like moving like wildfire throughout white communities. No, this yes. is a strategic, yes. logical, stri- I, mean, I can't say strategic enough, strategic yes. uh, move in order to maintain power. And we have to be strategic and organized in order to really fight it effectively, right? And I'm not mm-hmm. saying that there's plenty of great organizers and activists out there doing the work. Yeah, yeah. That's what I feel like I saw. So that is the discouraging part for the most discouraging part for me. And Mm -hmm. I still text people who were there with me in Pasadena and L.A. Mm -hmm. And sometimes we text each other and go. It felt like we were so close, you know, it felt like we were so close, especially where we were, because I built a library. (laughs) You know, like an online library for people who were organizing with me to give wow. everything that I'd learned from revolutionaries. I paid for trainings for people out of my own pocket, you know, wow. to like train. How do you hold space? How do you right. respond when if there's a live shooter situation or tear gas or whatever? Wow. And that work was disrupted by another organizer because they didn't because it wasn't them. They wanted to be the figurehead. They wanted people to follow them. And so they disrupted all that work. And I think that has been, that was disorienting. That yeah. grieves my heart. Oh yeah, it was disorienting. Wow. So yes, it I, was. I get what you're saying. Like when we look at what's happening with, um, you know, the same people who supported the January 6th insurrection still in office, with yes. New York, the sky turning orange and people still debating whether climate change is real or not. With oh my God. The, the mass shooters every other week, you know. I think every week, every day, every, literally every, every day. Yeah. Yes. This is a stressful environment to live in. Mm-hmm. And I think one of the things that's most discouraging is knowing, <laughs> like I always say, that this is unnecessary, that it doesn't have to be this way. That's right. Know? So that that actually it's funny because that that actually takes me back to our conversation in the first segment when you began to share about you know the way that you learned it doesn't have to be this way is really through struggling through um, the brokenness from family mm-hmm. and the depression mm-hmm. and because um, you have struggled with depression openly yeah. and and mm-hmm. I just I love how transparent you have been. Because yeah. you have no idea how many people you have helped in the oh, midst wow. of, no joke, of talking openly about your own struggle. And it makes sense, right? In the middle of this crazy world where you have hope one minute and then the hope is actually dashed through lateral violence. Yes. Not yes. through like the man, but right. actually through the people, right? right. And, right. And, and then also the man, like, so, you know, even right now, right? Like today, Yesterday, last night, you know, for to to kind of 
um, give a timestamp on our conversation, which I think is important. I don't always mm-hmm. do that because mm-hmm. we really, are, these are evergreen conversations, right, but yeah. this conversation is also happening in a really momentous context. It's happening in the context of last night, Donald mm-hmm. Trump being uh, indicted on seven federal criminal counts. The very first time in, uh, a former president of the United States has been federally um, mm-hmm. indicted. Mm-hmm. Um, we have not heard the charges yet. But what we do know is that one of those one of those charges is going to be relate to the Espionage Act. Like what? Like you know what I mean? Like this is this is some serious like high crimes that are happening here, and it's all very overwhelming. Yeah. I mean, it's very overwhelming. So I guess my question to you is, how have you navigated all of the layers, all of the things? Yeah. Um, you know that have come your way, not only from lateral violence and violence coming from down from the top, but also from the roots of your family experience. Like, yeah. how have you navigated that? I'm um, so okay. such that you can hold on to hope, right? Yeah. Like. Hope you have this podcast, Hope for Hard Pills. Hope like, how do you, how do you hold on to hope in the midst of that? How have you found hope? Yeah, you know. So that yeah, there there's a couple layers to that. So, mm-hmm. um, uh, I want to talk about hope and resilience in response to that. So yeah, okay. Hope is something I discovered around 2017. Um, or a new or reframing around hope, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, because remember, I my activism if, started with me carrying this boulder around to tell right. people this is what it feels like on my psyche, right? Mm-hmm. I look back mm-hmm. on that moment now and realize I've always been talking about mental health, right? And I've always been talking about emotions, right? Wow. Even though I didn't say it that way, but that's what I literally would tell people. This is what it feels like, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so a year after I'd started doing that, I found myself feeling very depressed. And a friend of mine, in, his name is Paul in Florida, sent me a book called Hope in the Dark by Rebecca Solnit. Oh, wow. And that book- Everybody get that book. Yes, oh my <laughs> okay. God. It saved my life. Literally, it saved my life because I've always been a depressive, you know, like my right. mother, my mother sent me to a child counselor when I was little because she was worried about me. Yeah, you know, I was born with that. And I think some of that is inter- intergenerational. Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, Can I also just say, I think a lot of that also is it's one of the byproducts of having the, the soul of an artist. Yes. Yeah. Artists souls are open. Yeah, they're open and they receive everything right until we learn how to protect our soul in the midst of receiving. Yeah. And also a part of that, like you're saying, is kind of coming into the world with a tender soul, tender heart in that way. And Mm -hmm. my family not understanding that. Right. Because Mm -hmm. they also have been socialized in a world that tells them toughen up, man up, whatever else. Right. So, wow. There's all of those layers going on in there. So. Mm -hmm. I mean, I was really feeling it. And I also feel, I also feel I have, I have high empathy for people too. So like when, Mm -hmm. you know, and also these, these police killings are acts of terror, like the spectacle of them is is a culture, an atmosphere of terrorism. So I was low and Paul just took it upon himself to have an intervention. He said, what's your address? He sent me this book and I read it and there's something in there that Rebecca Solnit said that it stays with me to this day. She says that hope is 
not optimism. That because the optimists tell themselves everything will be all right, regardless of what happens. And pessimists tell themselves everything will be bad, regardless of what happens. Wow. And both of these groups exclude, uh, excuse themselves from acting. But hope is literally about an uncertainty about the future. The future is unwritten. Right. You don't know what will happen tomorrow. But if you act, it could be different, you know? Oh my God, yeah. Right? And yeah. so that reframe- Hope is a verb. Yes, right? Exactly. A, mm. a practice, a discipline, a habit, right? Mm. And that reframed my understanding of hope since then. And so what I started doing since then was literally looking for hope, literally pursuing it. So like I would, I always buy books from people who are, who have done this kind of work or mm -hmm. have, you know, dared to, um, you know, stand up to oppression or whatever, or to thrive under oppression. And I read those, you know, mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. one, of, one of my favorite is called uh, The Impossible Will Take a Little While, which is a series of essays uh, mm -hmm. from everyone from, you know, Nelson Mandela to Cornel West and others, right? Wow. A wonderful book, 50 essays. Rosa Parks, has, you know, I think has a essay in there as well. Wow. Okay. Yeah. You know, and I, I, I feed myself things like that. I feed myself mm -hmm. stories because hope is based on, I feel like hope is, hope has to have grounds, right? Yes. It's Definitely. rooted. It doesn't, it, it's not based in the theoretical, the right. ethereal, even the vision of the future. It's, right. it's based in um, the feet on the ground moving forward. All right. And so exactly. And so there's a connection here for me is that hope and imagination are both based on memory. Right. And so I wow. feel so stories, you know, that remind me that ordinary people have fought these things before and won. like the story that I tell all the time about these ordinary women who the Nazis had abducted their husbands and these women went and got them back, <laughs> you know, <Wow>. non-violently <laughs> at that. They went back, they, it was 1945 in Berlin. These women just confronted these Nazi soldiers who had taken their husbands, refused to leave. And when the Nazi said, if y'all don't leave right now, we're going to we're going to open fire on you. They just started shouting murderers, 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 200 women. And the wow. Nazi dropped their guns and gave them back. And so. Oh, my God. But the the thing about that is that, like, imagine so that's hope is based on memory, but you realize if you, if, if that can't, if that happened, then it can happen. Right. The imagination is also based on memory. I remember when I was that's in so good. In work, this pastor said, I want you to draw an alien, but it can't look like anything that we've ever seen. And we couldn't, everyone just drew a blob. And it, the, the example was the, the, the lesson was your imagination is based on what you've seen. So that idea of wow, doesn't have to so be good. this way. The idea that it doesn't have to be this way is about imagination, which I think is what mm -hmm. artists and creatives and stuff, you know, like that we we live in that world, but the imagination is based on that memory. So that's the hope. But lately, I've been really having to learn and embrace resilience. That's kind of like my focus word. It's coming into focus for my life because 
I'm having to accept that mm-hmm. resilient that we do have to be resilient, right? Mm-hmm. And I say it that way because when I started uh, writing, shifting my music toward, uh, you know, social issues mm-hmm. in 2016, I just wanted things to change. Mm-hmm. I don't want to have to rise to the to to the occasion to be able to overcome these conditions. Because <laughs> these conditions should not exist as such, right? Mm-hmm. And so I kind of ignored resilience, especially because, get this, as I'm doing this and I'm looking mm-hmm. about focusing my work on this and understanding that music helps us be resilient, mm-hmm. I went and looked up what are the top resilience blogs in the world? Huh. None okay. of them are Black people. Oh, Wow. None of them, there are no, most of them are white, but I said no, no black people because there is a Zen resilience blog that is done Uh by a man who I believe is of Asian descent. Wow. So anyway, and I hear people in the movement say things like that. Don't call me resilient. And I get what they're saying. Don't call me resilient because. Let me just say that it also, it's important to say that it's not to say that there are no black people who have resilience blogs. Mm. It's that they were not among the top ones. Exactly. That's exactly what I'm saying. They're not Mm. in the top. And so so that's that's kind of where I was. And so because I was like that uh, in the beginning where I just wanted things to change, I was focusing on the structural, the political, all of that. I think that's partly why I burned out so so easily was because... Yeah. The fact of the matter is, from a grand view of things, even if racial injustice didn't exist, the fact that we live on this planet means we face adversity, right? Period. We're in life. Yes. Life has its challenges. I think about us being animals a lot when I think about this. And I think most animals actually spend a lot of their time trying not to get eaten every day. (laughs) Oh my God. That's why my dog is so loud. That's right. She barks at every little thing on the street. She's programmed. She's programmed to survive. That is like, that helps me. (laughs) If I, if I were a fly or, or a bird, Or something like that. Like I would spend most of my day <laughs> trying to survive. Yeah, trying to survive. Oh and my so, gosh. Wow. So as animals, like we have adversity in life that we have to face. Yeah. Right. And um, so in learning to embrace resilience, like I started therapy four years ago because of racial stress. Mm-hmm. Um, my therapist and I work together. And what I love about the way my therapist works for me is that we're always talking about tools, right? how to regulate, how to take care of our bodies, all that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Andre, could you sing your song for us? I think it's called Circle. Yeah, The Circle. Oh, very cool. The Circle. <sighs> um, so this is kind of, I guess if I were going off of what I was saying, I would mm-hmm. say like, I needed something to ground me again, you know, because of all the lateral violence, all that kind of stuff. And really, man, there's so there's so much you can say. But but coming back to, I wrote this song about an experience I had with an ex who physically attacked me. Oh you know, wow! She was a bully, you know. Wow, talk she about a, lateral violence! My yeah, goodness. she was a bully in so many ways, you know. Wow. Um. 
And I remember somebody saying to me about a story, another story that I told about abuse. Mm -hmm. They said, because I didn't want to call the person an abuser. The person Mm -hmm. said to me, Andre, abuse exists because there are abusers. The white woman Mm -hmm. said that, right? Mm -hmm. And I just, I just couldn't accept that. Mm. Because like we said earlier, you know, about the intergenerational thing. My my mother was the sweetest person I ever knew, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. At the same time, she was an authoritarian, you know? Oh, wow. She you was know? a bully. She 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 beat us. She she spanked us. She would insult us, all that kind oh, of stuff. My goodness. Right? Yeah. But, and then you're attracted to that, right? Because you don't know that's not love. But I I I don't think of my mother as an abuser. Because Mm -hmm. honestly, that wasn't the main, that wasn't the main characteristic of our relationship, Mm -hmm. even though it was a part of it. Mm -hmm. Her husband was a bully or is a bully, (laughs) you know, Mm -hmm. Um, even though he doesn't yell, you know, but he picks on people the way Mm -hmm. that he harasses the men in our family, you know, Mm -hmm. or did because he had a heart to heart with my older brother who actually got through to him. And now he's talking about going to going to therapy at 70 years old, right? My grandmother was the meanest Christian I ever met. You know, (laughs) she would literally call people stupid and all that kind of thing. Wow. She would also give you the shirt off her back, right? Her husband was a bully, abandoned her. She he disappeared one day, you know? Um, and she and my grandmother used to beat my mother every day. Just, my God, just so, so you she, really are. You're like really diving into intergenerational yeah. Yeah. trauma, handed down generation after generation after generation. Yeah. And you are not alone. Honestly, we all have these stories. Yes, but this. most of us haven't gone into it how you have. And, but look at this. Yes, my mother was a bully. She was also bullied. Yeah. My grandmother was a bully. She was also bullied. Yes. My grandfather was a bully. He was also bullied. Yeah. You get what I'm saying? Yeah, very, very much. I just couldn't accept someone saying there's abuse because there are abusers, you know, because my mother is not an abuser, you know, even Mm. though she could be abusive, you know? Yeah, yeah. My, my brother, we have a miraculous story. Someone should make a film about this one day, you know, if I could huh. write screenplay, because he was my biggest bully growing up. Huh. And one day we talked about it as adults. We have a long story of how we were able to have this conversation, but we talked about it as adults. And I said, Chris, I just feel like you were a bully. Hmm. And he looked at me and his voice got really low and he said, I know. Oh, wow. He's just said, I know. It's one of the, I can only count count this kind of moment on one hand mm-hmm. in my life. But him just saying, I know, mm-hmm. was like the affirmation I needed, right? Mm-hmm. To let it go. And once he admitted that, you know, I, I, first off, I held up my hand. I had out a pinky. I said, okay, you and I are going to write a new story today. We're going to tell our story differently, right? And uh, he gave me his pinky. And I said, I want you to promise me that from now on, we talk about the story is that you are my guardian angel. Hmm. Because I asked him, 
before we did this, tell me about a time you were my guardian angel, but I didn't know it. Oh, wow. And he told me about one time in elementary school, I had mouthed off to somebody <laughs> because, I, because <laughs> I have a mouth. <laughs> oh my gosh. And they wanted to beat me up and I didn't know. And he fought them. But I wow. never knew. Do you know that for years he carried resentment for the way that he stood up for me, but I never knew. And so he was resentful because I wasn't grateful for something. I didn't even know that happened, right? And um, little did I know that every day my mom was threatening to kick him out of the house for little things about chores and stuff like that. So again, bully and bullied, right? So anyway, I think I can tie this in a bow in, in this way. And it ties in with the circle is that in the movement, I, I started encountering a lot of binary thinking that there are good people and there are bad people, right? Mm-hmm. They're the good guys and they're the bad guys. And it even started, I started being affected by it when people started basically saying like, Andre is, Andre is bad because he's a man. Andre is toxic because he's a man. Anything that I tell you about Andre that might be bad, you can probably believe because he's a man, right? Wow. Um, yeah. And I looked in my family and saw people that caused real harm to other people in our family, but learned, right? Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. changed and evolved and grew. Mm-hmm. And um, I wrote the circle because I wanted to reclaim my humanity in one way, you know, in some mm-hmm. way, because I mm-hmm. noticed that people would talk about me as though because they perceive me as a man, <laughs> uh, mm-hmm. that I haven't encountered certain things. I haven't endured certain things, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And then I felt like at the same time as me sharing that story, I also need to challenge the idea that you're one or the other. So, I talk about my own toxic behavior, <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and uh, so that's where the circle came from. And I think mm. that it goes in with two things. One is understanding that we need to not forget that we all have work to do, right? And mm-hmm. not lose, not become the thing that we're fighting, first off. You yeah. Know? Um, And also with the resilience piece of, I realized that I have to expand my window of tolerance in the world in general, right? Mm -hmm. For the adversity that we face in life, for the systemic injustices that will not change tomorrow, and for people who in some way are more problematic than I would like, you know? Mm -hmm. Mm. Wow. So can we hear it? Can we hear the circle? (laughs) Awesome. Thank you. And I just want to acknowledge, I mean, it's a vulnerable topic that you're talking about right now. And I can imagine the song itself is vulnerable because, you know, I think I read somewhere somebody said, um, don't, I think it might've been Tina Turner who said, don't even write a song unless you are willing to bring your guts out to the outside, like willing to reach down into your guts and bring them out for everybody to see. Yeah, that's, so, that's and that's exactly what I'm trying to do with the music is mm-hmm. I believe that all of our stories are actually a story about the society we live in, right? Mm-hmm. And so, so here we go. Okay, okay, thank you. You finally wore that white 
dress Every girl wants to wear You felt that life-changing kiss A dazzling rock on your hand And I'm so happy for you I really do wish you well I only hope you treat him better than me I hope he never knows What your palm feels like Laying on his throat No one else inside Yeah, I know You didn't think that through And I'm not mad I just hope You're not a person who Would still do that I know wounded people wound And hurt people hurt Passing the pain In an inner circle I know wounded people wound And hurt people hurt Till we break the circle We gotta break the circle I know somebody out there Could sing a song about me About how toxic I was Though in a different key If I could go back in time Knowing the things I know now I'd clear the score the body keeps Make sure we never meet I've gotta believe Deep within my heart Everyone is more Than the worst they've done Please know that I've forgiven you Because I know that I need someone's forgiveness too I know wounded people wound And hurt people hurt Passing the pain In an inner circle I know wounded people wound And hurt people hurt Till we break the circle We gotta break the circle No I'm not trying to make excuses For any of the bruises I picked up from loving you too long I can only hope you're healing Cause I know the feeling Of being scarred and leaving scars Walking Freedom Road from coast to coast and around the globe, this 
is the Freedom Road podcast. Wow, Andre. Oh my gosh. <laughs> Brother, you have you have really taken us on a journey in this conversation. <laughs> oh, that song. I love that song. The circle. My God. Okay. So all right. I, I let me just say I'm really, really glad that God didn't take you into the academy. You know, and I'm really, really glad that, that God didn't just make you a podcaster, though nothing against podcasting since I'm doing it. <laughs> but holy Jesus, like you really, really were created as an artist. You really, really were. And I just love your music. Thank you. Um, you know, yeah. And I have to tell you, I mean, so I recently went to a, a concert by John Legend um, mm -hmm. when he came to Philadelphia with his latest um, LP. And um uh, do they call it LP? It's the album, his latest album. So, okay. <laughs> I don't know. I'm trying to be all like in the biz. I'm no in the biz. So. <laughs> You're doing a good job. It's definitely an LP. Oh, good. Okay, good. I'll I'll, I'll continue to fake it like that. So, <laughs> so, But one of the things that I was really, it, it struck me when I was listening to him, because I never thought of this before, but like all of his songs are about love yeah. and romance. Like he is a, he is all about the romance. He's like, I am here to help you love and love mm -hmm. better and love deep, right? Mm -hmm. In every possible way. Yes, <laughs> yes, yes. And so, you know, when I think about him, I think about how mature his music is. He, you know, he went to UPenn um, right here in Philly. So, of course, it felt like coming home when he was at the concert and all. And it actually was not, it, was, it wasn't a huge stadium. It was actually a more intimate space, which is kind of fun. Uh -huh. Um, but I wonder, as you discover your musical voice, what do you want your music to be about? Like when you people, when they when they talk about your music, what do you want them to to hear? Yeah. Resilience, you know. Um, I know that, like, and I had these conversations. So I've, you know, I've had mentors that are iconic singer songwriters. You know, mm -hmm. Ashford and Simpson, Desmond Child, you know, who wrote "Living on a Prayer" for Bon Jovi and those kinds of folks. And wow. having a conversation with Desmond when I was younger, this was maybe 10 years ago. And um, he played Frank Ocean for me because I played some new songs for him. Now mm -hmm. I've always, because remember, I come from a Jamaican family and Jamaican yes. music is political, you know, like it's everything. Jamaican music is everything, but Jamaican, right. Jamaican music has never been shy about talking about politics. Wow. It's so powerful on the island that when politicians want to get elected, they try to find artists who will support them, you know? Huh. So like, I always had a bit of that, you know, the, the first song I ever wrote was called Oppression, right? And it told the story of Black people for as much as I knew from being from the shores of Africa to the present day, right? When I was young. Wow. So anyway, you know, that's always been a part of it. So I, I'd say that for context when I talked to Desmond, because Desmond listened to my music and at that time, and he said, he played Frank Ocean for me. He said, you need to be doing this. You need to like be making all this music that people want to go to bed to and stuff. And no shade to anybody that does that. But I just feel like we have enough Black artists that are singing about sex, you know? That's for real, okay? <laughs> you know, and let me say, nobody can do it like that. Teddy Pentecost, <laughs> right? Like <laughs> you know, and there's nothing, and there's nothing wrong with that, right? Like it's yeah. great. But I don't feel like I want to contribute to just the sexualization of Black people in that way, the commodification of Black bodies in that way. Right. And it's taken me a long time, but with this EP, like you're hearing both, all of these songs are from the EP I just released, Make It mm -hmm. to Tomorrow. And I feel like I found the voice to, 
to, to sing about resilience because I thought about it and I said, what Black male artist is out there making music about mental health, you know? Mm. Wow. You know, like that's their thing. That's their thing. Right. Right. I don't think there is one, you know. And quite honestly, what you were saying earlier that like the top podcasts that are about resilience, none of them are by black people. Mm-hmm. Um, and and yet we are actually the people who probably need it the most or yeah, among yeah. the most, maybe next to Native Americans in the United States, you know, yeah. like and we are do- being directly targeted right now. So this is the moment, you know, yeah, this is that that Cairo's pregnant moment. This is the need. And I want to add to to what you just said, that I brought that up to say, um, I think a part of that is because the the voices that often dominate these conversations about resilience and mental health do it from a capitalistic perspective. So it's always rising to the conditions that should not be anyway. Mm Or, and it's like a spiritual bypassing thing, right? Like they don't want to talk about the fact that we feel what we feel because of the conditions we are subjected to, right? Yeah. And um, what really pulled it together for me was my recent trip to South Africa um, at Robben Island. Yes. On the way back from Robben Island, where, you know, these political prisoners were held, they were just playing clips of folks who had been incarcerated there talking about what they did so that uh, the experience in Robben Island prison would not completely break their spirit, right? Mm -hmm. And what struck me was they kept talking about their refusal to be broken in spirit in Robben Island as a victory against empire. Yes, that's right. Uh, let me just say, I stood at the edge of the lime quarry, which I'm sure you visited. Yes, yes. And it, it struck me there yeah. that what they were doing, because they, you know, they they were exercising resistance and resilience even in the lime quarry, yes. where they had to move rocks back and forth every day and cut For rocks, no same rock. There's no reason. And actually, the rocks they cut there were the same rocks that that repaired and built the prison they were they were you know imprisoned in. So Ooh. it was like really horrible work Um, and yet it was also the space where they it was like the university of the movement it was a place where they taught young men to read um, and other places and it struck me then that the anti-apartheid movement was actually not just an anti-apartheid movement it was a movement against dehumanization exactly right one quote that stood out to me on the way back was i can't remember the 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 man's but he he said he said that the oppressor always loses because mm-hmm. the human spirit is like water and it always finds a way around oppression. Mm-hmm. Right. And so for me, that solidified something for me because here I'm hearing black people, freedom fighters mm-hmm. talk about the importance of resilience, right. Of mm-hmm. spiritual work under these conditions, which is something that I don't hear a lot of. Hmm. There's something different when you hear, because I, this was one quote actually, where one prisoner said, you know, your suffering, hmm. the level of your suffering is affected by uh, how you frame this experience. Here's someone imprisoned for fighting for black freedom saying that. And that just hits different than Tony Robbins saying it for me. You know? Yeah, yeah. And so that's what I want my music to be about. I want it to be about resilience, you know, 
And I realized, you know, I wrote a lot of songs about police brutality, about racism and stuff. And I realized, <laughs> here's a funny one, is that Propaganda is actually on one of my remixes of one of these songs from a few years ago. And wow. neither, neither of us want to listen to that song. You know? Oh, my God. <laughs> because, <laughs> because it is triggering and we know it's re-traumatizing. Yeah. So like I said before, that like anything that makes Black people feel a little bit better, right, is a little victory against racism. Mm -hmm. And so that's what I want to do, you know, is this resilience music, this music that helps people to, you know, process their emotions, you know, but but mm -hmm. especially the, the, the direct intervention against the stress of living under the conditions on the cellular level. Hmm. You know, just now this is a little bit of an aside. I know that, and this is not for the tape, but mm -hmm. we had planned on ending on soft. Yeah. And the thing that's striking me is I think maybe the next, maybe the thing we really do need to end on is the hope. Um, what was that? You said that there was another song that was, way. yeah, it doesn't have to be this way that maybe we just end on that. Yeah. And do you have the ability to to sing that one or did yeah. you need to? Oh yeah. Okay, great. This has been so good. I mean, I think that one of the things that we don't, this is the first time I think that I've ever had anybody sing live on the podcast. And yeah. I think, you know, I remember back in college, but also sometimes in a movement too, we would all be sitting around a campfire and somebody would bring out the guitar and we just have a jam session. And those literally were some of the most life-giving moments. And honestly, I haven't had that in a long time. And yeah. so I wanted, as I thought about what do we need right now? What do we need right now in the middle of two indictments? Like, <laughs> you know yeah. what I mean? What do we need right now in the middle of, of the cray cray that is really erupting all over the country? We need music. Little did I know that music actually heals us, heals our bodies. You know, so I pray that, that that's the impact of our conversation and time today. Me too. And, you know, it brings up, this is a conversation in some movement spaces right now, actually. There was an article published by Paul Engler a few months ago, and his brother Mark, I believe, actually contributed to it too. And it's about song culture and movements. And they're wow. saying our, our movements need to start singing again yeah. um, because yeah. we don't have a lot of those, you know, um, newer songs, right, for That's right. that and a, a lot of people aren't aren't teaching the older ones. And when you think, and like when you read uh, Dr. King's Why We Can't Wait, for instance, right? Yeah. It's a whole section where he talks about the role of the freedom songs in the movement, how they were the heartbeat, the backbone of the movement, you know? When the police are carting people off to jail and they're singing, I ain't gonna let nobody turn me around, you know? That's right. It does something, so. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> so, so can we, can we, can you sing us out? Um, can you share with us a song that is kind of for you emblematic of yes. this resilience? Yes, this is Paul. one of my favorites. It's called It Doesn't Have to Be This Way. It's actually the remake of It Doesn't Have to Be This Way. Oh, fun. And um, it's a reggae song, so let's do it. Hey, reggae. What? Okay, we're going we to party our way out. <laughs> <laughs> oh, no, that's not it. This is it. Massive all our people that are sick to plan justice for much of Babylon system. No, I knew it. You can't talk away. You don't know. 500 people stomp on the pavement. All of the fists clenched high in the air. A cardboard and banners waving. 
hear the sirens wailing. 500 voices shouting for change. Saying, if all lives matter to us, tell me why some sleep on the street at night. If all lives matter, why do the bombs fly? Why, if everyone has their worth and love is what we deserve, why do they keep their knees on our necks? All I gotta say is, it doesn't have to be this way, no. It doesn't have to be, no. It doesn't have to be. I know we have the power to change it. It doesn't have to be, no. It doesn't have to be. We are like gods and don't even know it. Whatever we do becomes history. They may have the guns, but we've got the poets. The future will be whatever we say. Yeah, and we refuse to accept whatever's left after the one percent eats. The world belongs to we as much as anyone else. Yeah, everyone has their worth. And love is what we deserve. You got to get show me off my neck. All I gotta say is to be this way, no, it doesn't have to be, no, it doesn't have to be, I know, we have the power to change it, doesn't have to be, no, it doesn't have to be, I know. Come on now, come with it. <laughs> Conversations that leaders have on the road to justice. This is the Freedom Road Podcast. Thank you for joining us today. The Freedom Road Podcast is recorded in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, and wherever our guests lay their heads at night. Um, this episode was engineered and edited and produced by Corey Nathan of Scan Media. Freedom Road Podcast is executive produced by Freedom Road LLC. We consult, coach, train, and design experiences that bring common understanding, common commitment, and lead to common action. You can find out more about our work at our website, freedomroad.us. Stay in the know by signing up for updates on our Substack, which is where you'll find our newsletter. We put out about two newsletters per month, um, and they have all the different things, all of the things that are happening on Freedom Road. We promise we will not fill your inbox. And so we invite you to listen again and also check out the special Patreon and also Substack conversations behind the scenes on Freedom Road. And Andre has a Patreon as well. And I want to make sure that we, we know how we can support Andre's work. So Andre, how do people find you on Patreon? Yeah, for sure. Um, Patreon.com slash Andre Henry. Mm-hmm. And um you know, that's a great way for people to support what I'm doing. Um, it, I'm, I realized, and I asked a friend of mine the other day, I said, do I make this look easy? And he said, yes, you make it look very easy. You do, <laughs> but I know there's a ton of work that goes in behind the scenes for you. Yeah, music is expensive to make. I wish it weren't so expensive to make. So mm-hmm. that is very, you know, cool. So, you know, people who resonate with that vision of creating music for resilience, 
you know, intervening against, you know, the stress of living under these conditions. You know, that's one way that people can make a direct intervention against that kind of thing. And then, of course, like, um, I have a store on my website, andrehenry.co. You know, if someone's like, I don't know if I can do something every month. Listen, when you buy a T-shirt, a coffee mug, something like that, you know, all of that. Or a song. Hello. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) You know, um, all those things contribute to making the work happen. Amen. Amen.